0: If one were to journey today to Canton, Ohio to visit the Professional Football Hall of Fame, what jersey number would be the most common number that you think you would find among the greatest players of all time? It would be the number 12. Think Joe Namath, Roger Staubach, Terry Bradshaw, Bob Greasy, Ken Stabler, and a few more still playing the game that wear the number 12 that I'm not willing to name by name at this point, but you know who they are. And it's not just football. Wade Boggs, one of the greatest pure hitters to ever play baseball, wore number 12. Michael Jordan wore number 12 one time after his jersey was stolen before a game. He scored 49 points that night. Texas A&M has their 12th man, the crowd, that helps them out. And the par 3, a 155-yard crook of Amen corner at Augusta, the Masters, is the 12th hole. I mention sports because I'm missing sports, but it's not just sports. Look at the clock. Of course, there are twelve numbers. Twelve is the number of space and time. There are twelve signs of the zodiac. The European Union's flag has twelve stars. There are twelve days of Christmas. Twelve men have walked on the moon. There were twelve Greek Olympians. Twelve months in a year. Twelve is the year one comes of age in most societies. Think bar and bat mitzvahs for Jewish children turning that age. There are twelve inches in a foot. Twelve grades in school. Twelve steps, attics toward recovery, 12 notes in the chromatic musical scale, and I could go on and on. It is this symbolic number of completion and wholeness, and I haven't even gotten to the Bible. You know 12 is all over the place there. It's used two dozen times in the book of Revelation alone. What with the new Jerusalem, that final holy city being built on 12 foundations with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and within it the tree of life bearing 12 different types of fruit. The story ends that way, but largely the story begins that way in the Bible as well. Jacob, the namesake of the Jewish nation, had 12 sons. They would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve spies were sent to scout out the promised land. The book of twelve in the Jewish scriptures, what we call in the Christian scriptures, the minor prophets. Jesus was twelve when he went up to the temple. After he fed the five thousand, twelve basketfuls were collected to continue to feed the hungry. And of course, Jesus chose twelve disciples, twelve apostles who would become his immediate successors in sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. So, if that's not enough trivia for you this morning, you can have one more question posed to you. Can you name those 12 apostles? Can you name the 12 disciples of Jesus? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, you're only halfway correct there. Matthew and John, yes, but not Mark, And Luke, well, okay, there's Simon Peter, that loudmouth guy, and the first pope. Well, now you've got three of them. Uh, Judas, oh, he was such a Judas. Well, now you've got four. Uh, Doubting Thomas, that's one of them. That's right, now you're at five. And uh, James, because there's always uh, Peter, James, and John. John. And now you're at six. And it has been my experience that once we get to about six, that's all we can name. Uh, and that's not a put down. Heck, I, I I study the New Testament as a vocation. And if I haven't had enough coffee and omega three for my brain, I can't recall the last few either. Still, as a collective group, I've thought about these guys all week since before my talk even ended last Sunday. While I'm testing your recall, you might remember something about last Sunday. I spoke from Matthew chapter 10. It was the lectionary reading for the day as Jesus sent his disciples, those original 12, out into the world to preach and to do the work of the kingdom of God. And remember, we talked about Jesus' guidance as you go. And he said to his disciples, as he says to us, start at home, practice healing, travel light, And don't waste your time where you are not welcome. We learned that last week, or at least we talked about it. The learning and practice of such things takes some time. But these words, of course, were not originally spoken to us. They were given to this first group, to the 12, that we can hardly name without the help of a cue card. They were the first recipients. And I've been thinking about them. Sarah Ann's new song, I'm a Disciple of Jesus, that we all tried to learn together Live, streaming, only added fuel to the fire. It's a fantastic song, by the way. Here are the first followers of Jesus, the ones that we would say were the first Christians, and outside of a few of of the headliners, we don't know very much about them, but the Bible doesn't tell us that much about them. Where did they come from? We know a few things about a few of their hometowns, but not all of them. Why did they begin following Jesus? Some of them tell us how they were converted, but others are silent. What happened to them after Jesus' resurrection and ascension? Well, we have the historical narrative after the New Testament closes for a few of them, but most of them we have to rely upon unreliable tradition. There are more question marks here when it comes to these disciples than exclamation points, but there is one thing. One thing we know for certain about the disciples as a collective group, you would be hard-pressed to find a more diverse group of men living in Galilee in the first century, and that's why they have been on my mind. Ronnie, what is our country going to do? Ronnie, what can I do to start at home and to practice healing? Ronnie, I fear for the future, for my children, for my grandchildren. I don't know what to do or what to tell them. Ronnie, I'm just confused and torn apart. I am all for justice and racial reconciliation, but I'm also for protecting good police officers and public servants. I want things to open up and go back to normal, but I know this coronavirus is surging again, though I have friends who don't believe that. I've lost friends, and I've had the worst family arguments over all of this in the last few weeks, and Lord, don't get me started about politics and activism. I'm just over it. I'm over everything. All of that has been in my email box this week and on my voicemail and in my text messages and a few less healthy communications as well. And I feel for you. I'm with you. We're trying to figure this thing out, this thing being this moment that few generations ever live in, this opportunity to witness and to take on. And it's why these 12 men from ancient Roman Palestine, tromping over the Galilean hills, having given up everything to follow a revolutionary radical rabbi, have brought me an incredible comfort this week, a gift of grace, a steadiness, because I guarantee you that none of us are in any more contentious relationships than they were with each other, in their own day, they could not have agreed on very much. Torn apart by opinion, and politics, ethnicity, and race, and rivalry, but they could agree to follow Jesus. Jesus became the unifying factor that held them all together. I used this example Wednesday evening in our Q and A. Have you ever noticed that rarely is there racism at a ball game? I told you I've been missing sports. And when I was younger, my sports town was, and still is, Atlanta, Georgia. My family didn't want me to go to Atlanta when I was a teenager and in my early 20s. Atlanta was a little bit different place then. It could be dangerous in places. And you had to go, if you were going to a ball game, all the way into the heart of the city, uh, downtown. And there was this, you know, more than subversive racism. And my grandmother used to say to me, God love her, uh, don't you go down there, boy, they'll kill you. And they was always black people. But there I was, you know. I had to go see the Falcons play and I had to go see the Braves play, especially, especially in my early 20s. So on October 5th, 1991, the year that the Braves went from worst to first, they were like 40 games out of it at the All-Star break and came back and were playing to go to the pennant. I forget how many games they were behind, but our resident uh, Braves scholar, blogger and lover Ryan Cothran can give us the information on that, but I was there on that afternoon in the nosebleed seats, the last game of the season, and the Braves were playing the Houston Astros. They won 5-2 to two that day. John Smoltz pitched an entire game. Ron Gant hit a home run over the left field uh, wall. And after the game ended, nobody left. Nobody left because the Dodgers were playing on the West Coast that day. And the Dodgers, if they lost that day, the Braves would go to the playoffs for the first time since the Braves were in Milwaukee, to give you a perspective. So the stadium stayed, and the entire Braves team and the dugout, the entire Braves organization emptied out onto the field, and the entire stadium with the team, we watched the last couple innings of the Dodgers game on the jumbo screen. And when the Dodgers... Lost, the place went crazy. It just went absolutely bananas. And I have never experienced anything like that in sports before or since then. Even when the Braves eventually, eventually won that one World Series, it still didn't have that kind of energy that was there that day. And they eventually tore down Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. It's a parking lot now for the Olympics. But we almost tore it down that day out of excitement. And I found myself, as the pennant was clenched, jumping up and down, arm in arm with this man beside me who was a complete and total stranger. He was a 200-pound African-American man that we had not hardly spoken to each other the entire game. We had been very conscious not to get our elbows too close. Me being raised in the fear of the city and him probably wanting to have nothing to do with a a, a white hillbilly coming down into the city. And then suddenly there was something that brought us together that made us more like friends than suspicious enemies. It was this love of the game. It was this love of this team. There was something bigger, more transcendent that could bring us together like that. And we were fast friends within minutes. There was no hate that day. There was no animosity that day because there was something bigger at play. I mean, the same thing can be said about the state of Alabama, who has had this terrible racial history, one of the worst in our nation's history. But you can go up there and say Roll Tide or War Eagle and people that would never sit together at a table. That would never talk to each other are suddenly friends because of a couple words. Now, baseball games and football games won't heal the wounds of our world, though it would help right now, I think. And it won't bring harmony to the planet. But have you noticed how diverse a baseball game, a football game crowd is? There's rednecks and rappers. There's hillbillies and hipsters, those who graduated from that particular school and those who bought their shirt at Walmart. Those on the right, those on the left, men, women, blacks, whites, legals, illegals, it's a cross-section of society, but there they are, sitting together, cheering together, agreeing together, drinking together, and it would never happen without that transcendent thing to unite them. That's what I'm talking about. That's what the church was designed to be, a society without the prejudice of gender, race, status, or nationality. Jesus is what brings us together. If if we are willing to surrender to his way to join his team rather than demanding that Jesus join our team. This is what the disciples teach us. Here are the names of the 12 apostles, Matthew says, in Matthew chapter 10, the same chapter we were in last week. Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, Peter's brother. James, son of Zebedee, John, James' his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, he's called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Three little verses, twelve names, and the whole world is laid bare. Just watch this. Peter and Andrew, James and John, two sets of brothers. They were fishermen with fiery working man tempers. They'd probably go to the bar after work and after a couple want to bash somebody's brains in. Big talkers, too. Read the gospel and you will see it. Only Andrew of the four has any sense of self-control. Then there's Philip. He is the only one with a Greek name. Of the disciples, and scholars believe that because of that he is of mixed race, probably the product of a Jewish mother and a Greek pagan Gentile father. Bartholomew and Thomas, they are the critics, the doubters, the questioners. They can take nothing at face value and want to argue every fine point. The others, James and Thaddeus, are virtual unknowns, the silent middle awash in the theatrics of these larger personalities. And then there's Judas, what more can be said about this poor guy who was as close to Jesus as anyone and will be a pariah, it seems, for all of eternity, and yet even Jesus invites him in. And then two more, both with edited titles so that their significance is not lost. One, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. I hope you're listening right now. Hear these words. It is no exaggeration, even in the least, when I tell you that Jesus had a sleazy, collaborating, some would say traitorous, day-trading sellout on his team. One that worked for foreign interests, occupiers of their native soil. And, and, simultaneously, he had the equivalent of one of today's homegrown radical nationalists whose group was on every watch list from Jerusalem to Rome. It's all right here in the text. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were not helpful representatives from the local property assessor's office. They were criminals, contracted by the Roman government to do all the ugly, heavy-handed work of beating the money out of the populace. And in a society where most people couldn't read or write, most folks were taken advantage of. And even if they were cognizant of the injustice, they had no recourse to correct it. Because Matthew had the Roman army on his side, law and order. He was the unique combination of bean counter, mafia strongman, trader, and opportunist. And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew did. Meanwhile, on the polar opposite end of the spectrum, there is Simon the Zealot. And just like Matthew, the description to our ears is muted. Simon was not a man simply known for his enthusiasm, zealous. The Zealots were a terrorist organization of the first century, and the group that historian Josephus said was the group most responsible for the final war with the Romans and the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. They were purists. They were violent fundamentalists. They were also known as the Sicarii. The word means knives. They would walk into a crowd and pull out these knives from underneath their cloaks and begin stabbing people to sow discord and to, and, and, and to, and to sow further bloodshed it was the equivalent of a mass shooting today but for political reasons they wanted the romans the gentiles the greeks the tax collectors everyone that wasn't of pure race and devout religion out and jesus said follow me and simon the zealot did now, does this mean that Jesus brought together a coalition of the willing, a, a muddled middle where you be you and over there, let them be them. And we'll just try to get along for as long as we can. No. It meant that the words of Jesus, the way of Jesus became so central that all other identities, all other allegiances and all other polarities were suspended. And surrendered. It means that they may have started on opposite ends, but they didn't stay there. They couldn't if they were going to follow Jesus. It meant all that talk about loving your enemy and doing good to those who despitefully use you and taking sides with the least of these, my brothers and my sisters, and loving your neighbor as you love yourself and doing unto others as you would have done unto you. It meant that they took those words to heart and they lived it and it created this new, radically different community. Oh, well, Ronnie, you know that people aren't just going to go for this. This world isn't going to just start following Jesus. No. The world won't do that. And people in general are probably not going to do that. But what is this thing we call the church supposed to be about? What is it about? Only love, accepting, justice-seeking, persevering love, is the solution. And the greatest love I have ever seen is the love of Jesus of Nazareth. And the church must be so schooled and immersed in that love that we identify first, we identify primarily not as right or left, black or white, Citizen or foreigner, male or female, Jew or Gentile, but as those who seek to love as Jesus loved. That's what it means to be a Christian, or the word has no meaning whatsoever. There's so much more that I want to say. And even though there's no one here to stop me, <laughs> I'll finish for now with these words from Dr. King. And again, I referred to them Wednesday evening. These words are from his letter from Birmingham jail. When he was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama, during the civil rights movement, he sat in a jail cell while the Ministerial Association of the City wrote an editorial uh, condemning him and his methods as being too extreme. The preachers in town got together. This man is too extreme. And he answered them with this stellar Magnificent work of art. And uh, this is a part of it, just a paragraph or two. King writes to his fellow ministers At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. But I have gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus? an extremist for love love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you the question is not whether we will be extremist but what kind of extremist will we be will we be extremist for hate or for love for injustice or for justice in that dramatic scene on calvary's hill Three men were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. The nation and the world are in dire need of such extremists. Thus, let us all hope That the dark clouds of prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation.